You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the middle of this back table we'd love for you to use and take home if you need one there. I felt this way in my younger years. I didn't feel all that affected by what happened in Washington, D.C. Like, I knew that, you know, presidents came and went, politicians did their thing, but I didn't, you know, on on my personal level, I didn't really feel all that affected. I think we're more affected than I realized, but maybe we don't feel too directly affected by governing authorities. Maybe you don't work at a place where you have a boss that you have to interact with constantly, or maybe you don't have a job in a workplace like that at all. Maybe you're not married either. So some of those last few sermons, maybe you think, I don't need to worry about that. Today, you can't say that. You can't get off that easy because if you are born again, then you are a member of Christ's body. You are the body of Christ, in fact. And in that context, you better believe that you need to know how to live out this new life in Christ in the midst of those relationships. So we've kind of continued this theme of new life, old relationships, and, and that may be kind of a misnomer here because really a lot of the church relationships to the Peter that the, the people that Peter was writing to were brand new. Likely first generation Christians had seen Jesus, maybe even heard him preach. These people, maybe they weren't a whole lot of old relationships in the church. They were new ones that they were establishing. For us, it's going to be something that we've already been familiar with. So I just want to point out again, verses two and 15 of chapter two, these are our connecting verses. And they remind us that the conduct of Christians matters with governing authorities in the workplace, in our home. And now Peter says our conduct in the church, in the body of Christ matters too. How do we live differently in the light of what God has called us to be in the local church? Well, I think Peter here gives us seven ways in just in verses eight and nine. He gives us seven ways that instruct us as the church for health and well-being, okay? And so we want to look at those things together. And since, remember, followers of Christ, we don't respond to anything the way that we once did. Some of those things that we talked about the last three weeks, four weeks, the world looks at that and they say, that's ridiculous. The world doesn't work that way. And you know what? They're exactly right. That's the point. The world doesn't work that way, but God's new people are supposed to. And so we get into our text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Let me read those and then ask the Lord to bless our time. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Lord, we again ask your, your spirit to be with us as we work through this text this morning. Lord, we know that just talking about what words mean and, and these sorts of things, it's good, but Lord, that doesn't truly change us. It has to be a result of your indwelling spirit in your people that changes us. It has to be the work of your spirit in making us aware of our need of salvation and turning us to Christ and repenting. And Lord, it's all a work of of yours. And so we pray again as we look at your word that we would not just understand it, study it faithfully, 
Lord, but that we would apply it as your people who need to know and the world, the world need to see how we apply it well. Give us your grace as we understand, listen, and then apply today. In your name we pray. Amen. So look at the first word here. It says, finally. I don't think it's like the, finally. It's like, okay, here's at the end. Finally, here's some more instruction. After everything, so he's still keeping, Peter is still keeping us apprised of everything that has come before. After hearing all of these things, at the end, after encouraging God's new people to live very differently in some of the biggest areas of life, Peter moves to the church. I don't know if if Peter intended to put it at the end of this list for a particular reason or not, um, but if there's one specific place where God's new people ought to live out their new life in Christ, don't you think it should be in the context of the church? Right? Now, we're called to in all those previous areas that Peter's discussed, but you, you better believe that the world looks at what the church does, and we ought to be living it out here first and foremost. And it makes sense, I think, because we all share common traits, right, in the church. Specifically, as Paul puts it, one faith, one baptism, lost my place in my notes here, all of these things, one Savior, one Father, one Spirit, all of these things are what we share. And so, kids, this is what Pastor Jason asked you to listen for. If we say we belong to the Lord, then we also belong to his family. You're part of God's family. Now, I, I realize that's not revolutionary. That's not really all that exciting. But that's the truth. If you are, and we'll talk about this more in just a moment, if, you're, if you say you're a Christian, then you're a part of the church. Now, what Peter, he lists these, I, I said, seven things for health and unity and, and liveliness in the church. But this isn't an exhaustive list. It's not comprehensive, but it certainly is instructive for us in the church today, for Christians in the church. And this means every Christian. So to say, I've mentioned this before, we discussed this in our, our small group uh, at the Braungarts a couple of weeks ago, but if you, if you say that you're a Christian and you're not regularly involved in a church, then you're living an oxymoron kind of a life. To say that you're a Christian and to say, I don't need the church doesn't make sense and it doesn't jive with what the Bible says. Because Christians have been saved out of one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and put into another kingdom, the kingdom of light. Think about the word kingdom. It's not a kingdom if it's, if it's one person. It's, it's a bunch of people. You're not loners. So whether you lean more as an extrovert or whether you lean more as an introvert, you have a place in the body of Christ. You are a part of God's family and families need to know how to relate to each other and care for one another properly. And so Peter starts that in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, here's the first one, have unity of mind. Unity, that's the first thing. Now, one of the best things about being a part of a church is also one of the most difficult things about being a part of the church. And it's all of our differences. It's all of our differences, our perspectives, our backgrounds, our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, our different passions and interests. That makes the church beautifully diverse, well-balanced in all these things. And yet, as you can imagine, 
that can also be the catalyst for problems, for conflict. You see that in your own personal family, and surely you've seen it in church life as well. Peter isn't saying here, though, that you have to just, like, give up your personality, put away your personal individual passions, and just assimilate to the church. That's, that's not what he's getting at here. Setting aside your viewpoints and just mindlessly taking on the will of the congregation or the pastor isn't what the church is about. That's not what happens in the church. That's what happens in a cult. That's not what happens in a church. You don't have to agree with me that yellow is the best color, that the St. Louis Blues are the best hockey team, or that lemonade is better than tea, even though all those things are true. We have different preferences, and that's okay. Peter wants the people of God not to be united on what we serve drink-wise at a meal. He wants us to be united on the things that really matter. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. These are the things that Paul lists in Ephesians 4, 5. In your notes, I've got a list of a sampling of some pretty good things that we need to agree on. Things that really matter. Let me just read through them quickly. Here are things that we need to agree on as a church. The existence of the triune God. The complete deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. His virgin virgin conception. His incarnation as the eternal Son of God. The pervasive sinlessness of all humanity. Christ's substitutionary death as the only way of salvation. Jesus' physical resurrection His coming return, salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and the infallibility and divine authority of Scripture, of the Bible. Now, that's not all, but those are really some of the biggest things that we need to have the same perspective on in the church. Not what sports team is the best, not what color of the carpet is the best, these sorts of things doctrinally, what do we have unity of mind over? So we have to be unified in believing those same things when it comes to the Christian faith. But we also have to be ready to show deference and honor to one another on all those lesser issues that aren't eternal. If we can agree on those eternally important things, like in that list we just read, then we're going to be able to, by God's grace, to be able to work through the lesser differences that come up between us. Surely we can. If we say, you've got the Spirit of God in you, just like I have the Spirit of God in me, we can work this out. It may take some work, but we can do it together. Now one way Peter has already called us to do this and to live it out practically is back in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. That comes at the end of a list of other people, includes other people in that. Uh, R.C. Sproul liked to use the term human dignity to illustrate this kind of an idea. Here's kind of a neat story. Uh, So R.C. Sproul worked for a time, I think it was like back in the 60s, mediating labor management disputes. I'm not sure how he got this job, but mediating labor management disputes in the mid-1900s. Uh, And he even worked with members of the American Communist Party. You you understand what that is. That's the Communist Party that was trying to get footholds in America. And he would sit down and he would ask everybody involved and he would say, he would ask them this question. Do you want to be treated with dignity? 
Well, you can imagine what everybody said. Of course. Yes, I want to be treated with dignity. Okay, then his next question would be, well, what, on what basis can you have dignity? Is it something that human beings possess inherently? Or is it something that has to be given or earned? Well, again, people would say, well, yeah, that's everybody's, everybody's got that. It's, it's within every person. Well, then he would point out, I'm sure as gently as he could, how their belief about creation denied their answers to those questions. How can you believe, he would say, that we emerged from slime in some co- cosmic accident and have inherent worth? It, it, it didn't make sense. They, had, they believed that they had come from nothing and were destined to nothing after death. Both ends of their existence were nothingness. So how could they have value and dignity in the middle? And this is, that's what he would ask them. He said, if you came from nothing and you're going to nothing, why don't you just see yourself as nothing right now? He would go on to tell them that he agreed with them that all people have dignity, but his reasoning for that was very different. His reason for believing that the, every person had dignity was that the eternal creator of the world, who he himself had inherent dignity, had given that dignity to all mankind. So every person, whether you agree with them or not, has worth, value, dignity, because they are image bearers of the Creator. How much more in the church, as a collected group of God's set-apart, holy people, should we recognize and celebrate one another's value and worth and dignity? That's not always what people think of when they think of church, though, is it? Peter's been making it clear, just like Jesus made it clear in his Sermon on the Mount that I referenced last week in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. They're making it clear that God's people live completely different than the world around them. Just so very different. R.C. Sproul says this, I'll quote him, The worldview we embrace as Christians is on a collision course with the thinking of this world. The Word of God gives us the perspective of God, and that perspective is radically different from the perspective of the world. And the more that the church and Christians try to assimilate with the world and bring that thinking into their lifestyle, the further we actually get, get from God Himself. So in the church, we have unity of mind when we share the perspective of God, which is an eternal perspective. So how are we viewing one another in the church? If our thinking is being formed by God's eternal perspective, it's going to lead us to like-mindedness in our passion for the things of God and for the ways of God. Show me a church that doesn't let little petty issues divide its members, and I'll show you a church that influences the community around it for righteousness. The next thing in Peter's list is that he calls God's people to sympathy. Some, some of your versions might have the word compassion there. I'm afraid that when we think of sympathy, we get that, that abused animal commercial in our minds. You know what I'm talking about with like the Sarah McLaughlin song in the background that's all sad and, you know, you really want to give them your money at the end of that commercial. And we think of that as sympathy, but that's not the kind of compassion that Peter is getting at here. This, the kind of compassion that he's talking about is, is that it means that we share 
common feelings with our brothers and sisters, with other Christians. Or we feel someone else's pain almost like it was our own. You think back to Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Paul is talking to the church and he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens. There are times when we need to listen to the cares of our fellow church members. I heard it put another way as I was reading this week. To have compassion or to have sympathy is to share someone's passion. To share it. So, to illustrate this, when a church member comes to you, a fellow believer, maybe they're not a church member here, but they're a fellow believer, when they come to you and and through tears are explaining this difficult thing that they're going through, this challenging season in their life, do you just kind of listen half-heartedly and and give them a little pat on the shoulder, tell them you'll be praying for them, and then go about your life like normal? Maybe we do, but maybe we shouldn't. How, How can we? How can we just slough off their prayer request when they've communicated it with such passion? They're in tears. They're crying. As God's new people, instead, we ought to join them in their passion by praying in the same spirit for their loved one or for whatever situation that they're describing to us. And really, as Galatians 6.2 says, what a privilege it is to shoulder the weight of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I bet you can think back to a time in your own life when you felt desperate, in need of prayer, didn't know where to turn, didn't know what to do, didn't know how you were going to face whatever was coming, and you just poured that out to another believer, to maybe a church member, and you felt their their words of compassion, their listening ear, their prayers, and it lifted your spirits. If, If you can't think back to a time when that's happened to you, I would encourage you to go and to be that person for somebody else. Listen to them, encourage them, pray for them. The third thing that Peter mentions in verse 8 is, he says, brotherly love. So he moves from compassion to love. Now this is, I think, sometimes a little hard to grasp because all of our family dynamics look differently. So some of you guys have, have great relationships with your dad and your mom, sisters and brothers, and some of, some of them are just strained. Some of them are maybe non-existent. Maybe they've passed on and it's just you. Whatever the situation is, sometimes we don't fully grasp what the Bible is saying because we just don't share the same kind of a family situation. That's okay. One of the primary images that the Bible gives for the church, though, is, well, you guessed it, a family. So in that picture, who is God? In the family, who is God? God the Father, right? God is the Father. Everyone who has been born again has been adopted, grafted into the family of God as his children and who who is our brother Jesus Christ it says he is our brother the firstborn it says so if Christ is our brother that makes every other christian our brother and sister as well now that doesn't always mean that we're going to agree with them i mean if you've got siblings you understand that you don't always agree with them maybe it's on lesser important things but if it's the love of god the love of the father that connects christians to each other then maybe we ought to love one another just because they have God as a father too. And really, there's no maybe about it. We ought to love one another simply because God is their father too. We share the same father. Next, Peter adds to the list 
On top of love, he says, be tender-hearted. I think this word is similar to sympathy, compassion, but it has an, an idea of more tenderness too. That's why the ESV renders it uh, tender-hearted. It's basically the opposite of roughness. Okay, and I'm not necessarily talking about like physical roughness, though sometimes it can manifest itself in that way. I mean more like tenderness in relating to one another's feelings. Okay, and please understand that I'm, I'm not saying that we should elevate feelings above truth in, in the least bit here. I'm not talking um, so much about you like coddling someone and listening to their feelings and not point them back to the truth. That's not what I mean here. If someone is acting unbiblically, you should tell them they're acting unbiblically and not just not say it because you don't want to hurt their feelings. Let me give you an example here. Okay, suppose that my young son, stand right here for us, buddy. Suppose that he comes to me and he's upset because one of my other kids said something to him that hurt his feelings, that he considered was mean, and now he is upset and sad. And his feelings have been hurt. Okay, as his father, how do I respond? I could say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Deal with it. Get over it. Have, have you, you don't have to admit it, but have you said some of those things to your kids before? Yeah, probably. Uh, maybe I said, well, just, just forget about it. Which in essence is saying, just bury it down deep until the next time you get hurt and then you're going to explode. So we can, we can inform our kids on how to respond to these kinds of situations in all kinds of ways. Suck it up. It happens to everybody. Or, or do I listen with tenderness? Well, explain, explain why that hurts your feelings. Explain uh, to me how you're going to talk to your brother or your sister and tell them why it hurts your feelings. Help them understand his feelings and help him walk through kind of what it means to be upset and then how to reconcile back with a sister or a brother. I think we do our children a disservice when we just tell them, ignore your feelings. Okay. So there's, there's obviously a delicate balance here between coddling feelings and making it all about our feelings, but then also just trying to eliminate them from the equation altogether. We can't do that. God designed us with them. But we need to understand them and how we identify and relate to one another even in the midst of this. Again, feelings are not our driving, guiding source in these kinds of relationships. Truth is, God's word is, and there's plenty to be said about conflict and reconciliation in his word. In fact, Jordan read a scripture in our worship time about reconciliation. It starts with Jesus reconciling us back to God. And that's the idea that we want to get and to teach our children. I think the word kindness might actually be able to be used here as well. When you see somebody who's being kind, they're displaying kindness, it kind of gives you a little window into their heart, right? We might say that they have a tender heart. Okay, well, what would you say is the opposite of a tender heart? Abrasiveness? Maybe a hard heart? The opposite of a tender heart is a, is a hard heart? How did Jesus respond to hard-hearted people? This, this is kind of interesting here. Think about Jesus' life for a moment. Think about his interaction with people as he, as he ministered. When he dealt with 
arrogant and hard-hearted Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, scribes. He wasn't all that gentle, was he? Think back to some of the terms that he called them to their face. Whitewashed tombs, snakes, brood of vipers, wolves in sheep's clothing, adulterous generation. (laughs) Can you imagine this sort of thing? And yet, when Jesus encountered the meek, the lowly, the poor, the outcasts, how did he respond to them? He didn't say these kinds of things to them, did he? When he came across a sorrowful sinner, he knelt down and he wiped their tears. He listened. He helped. He showed tenderness. So I would say being tender-hearted is not being weak. It's actually being like Jesus. We should be tender-hearted towards one another. The fifth thing Peter says is a humble mind, or I think that King James says courteous. It means to be kind, thinking of others before yourself. That's what humility is getting at. It means to respect other people, their feelings, maybe even their position. This, interestingly, is the only time in the whole Bible that this word is used for a humble mind or or courteousness here. It's the only time. But you can probably think of some other passages where Paul is explaining the same kind of feeling, the same kind of thing. I've got them in your notes there, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. I mean, if, if we applied just that half of a sentence right there in the church, 99.5% of our problems would be gone. Now, that's a generalization, I know. But think about applying that. Think about some of the... Maybe some of these situations of conflict that you've experienced in church before, or maybe just in your family. If people had that mindset, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. If people had that mindset, don't you think that that conflict would have been resolved or never happened in the first place? Paul continues in Philippians 2 verse 4, Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. First Peter 4, 8 and 9, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And you can think of a lot of other passages that are written to the church, that encourage this same kind of humble behavior. It's just like everything else that Peter's been saying. It goes against the grain of our culture, and it goes against the grain of what we kind of want in our flesh, doesn't it? I don't want to give preference to somebody else. I want the best for me. That's that's the, the mode that we operate in. Not, we're not for the grace of God. We would operate in that 24-7. And some people still do, even when they shouldn't. Count others as more significant than yourself. Where else do you hear that thing except from Jesus in the Bible? Nowhere. Nowhere else do you hear that kind of thing. It's only God's Spirit in His people that could ever make it possible for the new people of God to love and care for one another in this kind of way. It's only because of God's Spirit. 
And even though it may not always be easy, it's always right to treat one another this way. I think Peter's thought process continues as we move from 8 into 9. And he gives the sixth instruction to the church. And he he says this, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So this is the first time, in the text for today at least, where Peter kind of goes to the negative to teach us something. There's, There's times when we need to see that. And he says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't repay reviling for reviling. Reviling is kind of like slander. I think this is actually pretty easy for us to understand. We maybe explain it to our kids this way. Kids, you can finish this statement for me, okay? Two wrongs don't what? Don't make a right. So just because someone has wronged you, if you wrong them back, that doesn't get things even. That just goes more to the wrong side. Two wrongs don't make something right. We understand that. We teach our kids that sort of thing. It's a biblical principle to some degree. Jesus said it a little bit differently in Matthew seven twelve. He said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do that to them. Do also to them, he says. We call that the golden rule. He also said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. A little earlier in Matthew 5, he said this, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Does that sound pretty standard for the world? I mean, even if it was in Jesus' day, that's obviously a saying that they had. In our day, it's not very different, is it? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, two wrongs to try to make something right. Jesus says, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This sounds ridiculous. The people who heard Jesus say this said the same thing. This sounds crazy. How are we to do this? This sounds ridiculous. One of the most basic instincts that rise up from the depths of the person when they get wronged is to do what? Get revenge. I mean, that is one of the most basic things that comes out. When we feel offended or hurt, we want to get even. Jesus and Peter and God's word tell God's new people, you are not to react that way any longer. And I get it. It goes against the grain of what we're used to. And that's exactly the point. Because you're not a part of the world anymore. You've been saved out of that kingdom into a kingdom of light, of truth. I think it's kind of interesting to think, but if if we're doing the, the previous five things well, so let's just review them. If we're having a unity of mind under the gospel, if we're being sympathetic to one another, if we're showing godly love, if we're being tender-hearted towards one another, if we're showing humility and counting, uh, considering others as more important than ourselves, if we're doing all of those things, we're likely, more than likely, not going to make a habit of being evil towards one another, even when we've had something wrong done to us. Especially in the church, we don't handle being hurt the same way we did before we met Christ. We don't deal with it the same. Maybe once we might have repaid evil for evil, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, 
Maybe we would slander somebody for slandering us. But if Christ has changed us, we handle those kinds of situations very differently now. I would condense this, the sixth thing that we're talking about, I would condense this down to one word, forgiveness. We don't repay evil for evil. That doesn't mean that evil is never going to be done to us. In fact, in the next few verses of chapter 3 and 4, Peter's going to make it really clear that's actually going to happen. Evil will be done to you, even when you're not doing anything wrong. But when evil is done to us, we have the choice. How do you respond? Like, do you respond in like kind with more evil? Or do you forgive? Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.32 similarly both say, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Listen to this. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. This verse should be a part of every single counseling session there is. Children to parents, husbands to wives, bosses and employees, whatever counseling situation you feel like you're in, more than likely someone feels hurt. And they need to hear the truth of God's word. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 18, you might remember it, to illustrate this very thing. It's titled, The Unmerciful Servant. You remember it, probably. One servant is forgiven a huge debt, and then he goes, and on his way home from having that huge debt forgiven, life-changing debt forgiven, he finds a buddy who owed him a little bit of money who couldn't pay, and then he throws that guy in jail till he can pay. And the master here gets wind of it, and there's bad news for that unmerciful servant. And Jesus' point in all of that is that if you refuse to forgive others, then you won't receive forgiveness either. But I think Peter actually takes it a step further here. He says, not only are we not to repay evil for evil, but look at what else he says. He says, on the contrary, bless. Bless. For this, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So we shouldn't just stop at not repaying evil for evil. That's good. And that may be the first step. But we can't just stop there. We're told to take it a step further. In fact, bless those who persecute you, who mistreat you. And we think, man, as if just not taking revenge was hard enough, now we're supposed to actually do good to the people that hurt us? This is the seventh thing that Peter describes. Maybe the most challenging thing in the whole list here. Be a blessing, even to people who don't deserve it. Peter says Christians have been called to this, to be a blessing, to be salt and to be light in the world. Guys, Christians, we've talked about this in our small groups, Christians are to be heavenly minded, not focused on the things of this earth. We're not citizens here. Our citizenship lies in heaven. And since our inheritance is stored up for us there, that's what Peter said at the beginning of this letter, our inheritance is, is kept for us in heaven Because of all these things, Christians are able to return good instead of evil, to bless instead of curse. And in doing these things, Christians obtain the blessing of their incorruptible inheritance. In doing these things, Christians demonstrate to a watching world the unusual and incredible power of God to live and to love others 
the way only Jesus could. And in doing these kinds of things, Christians apply, I think, one of God's greatest evangelistic tools. Listen to Matthew 5. Consider Jesus' words. This is verses 43 through 47. He said, You've heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That describes the sons of God. He goes on. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, even an ungodly world expects people to treat others the same way that they're treated. You get cursed, you curse back. Maybe somebody does something nice, well then you're obligated to do something nice back. This is the world's economy. That's what they operate on, Jesus is saying. Even the tax collectors, the Gentiles do that kind of thing. What's so special about that, he says? The world expects people to treat one another that way, in kind. But only people under the influence of the Holy Spirit treat people better than they deserve. Only God's new people do this kind of crazy, unusual, new things. Things like pray for their enemies, Jesus says. Bless people who persecute them. Forgive people who don't deserve it. And love those who hate them. Only the Spirit of God in a person can create that kind of behavior, that kind of conduct. So the question is, does that describe me? Does that describe you? Are we the kind of people in the church that Peter's writing to here, when he says, finally, do these things. Church, if we want to be healthy, if we want to be the kind of people that God has called us to be, here's a list. Start at the top and start praying it over yourself and your family every day. God, may we be unified in our mindset. May we have sympathy Love, be tender-hearted to one another, have humility to not repay evil for evil, but instead to be a blessing. Does that describe us? Again, only the Spirit of God changes a person to want to do those things, but only the Spirit of God also empowers God's people to go and to live that way, to do those things. And if you've been forgiven by the sacrifice of Jesus, then you have God's Spirit in you. You have been empowered by that Spirit to go and to live this way. Peter and Paul, especially Paul, make it very clear, though, this doesn't often happen, really ever happen, without a battle. Without an inward battle and a spiritual battle around us. And so as God's people, we have to understand this life involves conflict spiritually that we maybe can't see but also in relationships that we can see and peter says to 
to relationships in the church, be different. In relationships in your marriage, be different. Relationships in the workplace, be different. Even in relationships regarding our governing authorities, be different. Every one of us needs to take this to heart. And when we live it out, man, a beautiful thing happens. People see God's people as different. See, the world, I think, has been, the church, rather, has been tricked or maybe just deceived willingly, I'm not sure, into thinking that the more we become like the world, the more the world will like us. And it's the exact opposite of what the Bible calls us to be. Because the world won't care what we have to say when we're just like them. But if we react differently when we're persecuted, all of a sudden they have a reason to listen. Brothers and sisters, give the world a reason to listen. And next week, Peter's going to say this very kind of thing. He's going to call us to always be prepared because they will listen. Let's pray. Lord, this, I feel it in my own heart. I'm sure my friends who are listening hear it the same way. Lord, this just feels so impossible sometimes. I, I don't always want to not hurt someone that's hurt me. I don't always want to be humble. I don't always want to be tender-hearted to my loved one's feelings. I don't want to do all these things all the time. And so, Lord, I know that because I feel that way, you have a work to do in me still. And I know because many of my friends here feel that way, you have a work to do in us. And we thank you that the work that you started, you're going to complete, and you're working it out in us even now. Lord, you are you are and progressively sanctifying us day in and day out, refining us in fires of difficulties, Lord, creating opportunities for us not only to love one another, but to rely on you even more. Lord, help us not to be deceived as a church and to think that we have to become like the world for them to listen. No, 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 no. Lord, help us to realize that the more set apart we are, the more Christ-like we are, that's when they actually want to listen because they see something that's totally different, totally contradictory to what they have seen all around them. And Lord, may we be ready in those moments to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And it's Jesus Christ. So Lord, today, if, if there's here any who have not put their faith in you, Lord, I pray as we now think of the Lord's Supper and of your broken body and shed blood, God, that they might see and be reminded of the physical act of sacrifice that Jesus displayed. And he exemplified all these things, or he did not revile in return. He did not give evil for evil. Lord, instead, he was a blessing. Help us to see a clearer image of that as we think of this supper today. Win hearts to yourself through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.